finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. This is a podcast where we read things and then we talk about them. Uh, half the time, we read a comic book, and then we talk about that comic book. We are into the latest of our series of series about series. Specifically, uh, we are covering the classic 1980s uh, Grant Morrison penned Animal Man run. Another one of the sort of proto-Vertigo books alongside other ones that we've covered like Sandman and Swamp Thing especially. Uh, And this is volume two, which I believe is called Origin of Species. Origin of the Species. Yeah. Just like the Darwin book. I thought the intro, you were setting up some kind of preface to alert people that Animal Man is actually metafiction. Well, yes, it is. It is definitely metafiction. Um, it's going to get more meta when we get into the last volume, but it really ramps up uh, here. We got a taste of that in the previous volume with the Coyote Gospel. Right. And I think this sort of... I see this as this sort of bridge issue where it sets up a lot of the longer storylines that are to come in the series because I think there's a lot of like preliminary legwork setting up what's going to be happening in the story arcs. So this is issues 10 through 17 compiled into volume 2 Origin of the Species and I think all of the issues were originally released in 1989. Uh, I think that's the case. Uh, yeah. Because this issue 10 starts in April. If they're coming out monthly, then they're all going to end up being uh, in 1989. And this issue starts with a long prologue. Yeah, and also I think, I mean, you'll get into it, I'm sure. I have, like I said, off the podcast, many questions. More questions than I had for volume one. But I think this this volume brings up a lot of older or pre-existing characters. Yeah, yeah. This is where it really gets into, um, this is where the book kind of becomes about, like, continuity, about serialized storytelling and, like, long-running characters. I think it's interesting because a couple of the choices that you made for our longer series, like Neil Gaiman, Sandman, and then Swamp Thing with Al Moore, all three of these writers like to really use obscure characters and yeah. bring them back. I think part of that is because they're nerds, obviously. Especially Grim Morrison. They're the biggest nerd of the bunch. Uh, they're king nerd. But <laughs> um, also I think part of that is because that, that give like while working within this work for hire structure for DC Comics, specifically all three of those are DC Comics, Using the more obscure characters gives you a sense... You can kind of claim ownership of them in a way you can't with, like, Batman. You can't wildly reinvent Batman. You can have Batman show up as a secondary character in your comic and wildly reinvent his deal. But you can have Dane Dorrance of the Sea Devils show up as a secondary character in your comic, and you can make him an eco-terrorist. Now, is Grant Morrison... Is Are they British? They're Scottish. Scottish. Okay, because this really also has a really 
hot, like heavy British slant to it. I mean, they get lumped into the British invasion, okay. which, you know, it starts with, Alan Moore's kind of the vanguard of that, but there's a whole sort of grouping of British writers that, I mean, largely, uh, you know, our girl Karen Berger brought into DC around this time, and Morrison is lumped in with them, you know, you've got... Gaiman is another one. Peter Milligan. Uh, there's a couple others who are less notable. I have to say before we get into the issue, it might be shocking to Nate, but I think that maybe Animal Man is my favorite character. It used to be Constantine, but I think Animal Man has sort of inched his way to the front. Okay. So. I mean, I, I guess I'm surprised, but also like... My thought process was, like, we were going to cover this book no matter what because we were doing all the Vertigo stuff, and this is another important one. But I was always like, oh, my mom's, Andrea's my mom, by the way. If this For some reason, the second episode of the Animal Man series is your first episode. <laughs> Andrea's my mom. Um, I was like. Go back to number one, please. Yeah. I was like, my mom's really going to like Animal Man, like Buddy Baker, the character. I think he's really going to appeal to her. Uh, part of that is that he is an extremely Gen X character. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, we get to see his revised origin later and, like... Anyone that, like, references, like, the English beat... Yeah. Yeah, I definitely am into that, so... So let's get into it. Speaking of, like, British, the first yeah. issue is called Fox on the Run. Well, the... the Yeah. Well, it's two, kind of two parts, right? It's this prologue called The Myth of, of the... The myth of the creation. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it that leads directly into Fox and the Run, which, you know, obviously that's a reference to a really great sweet song. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think that, I don't remember if the that part has a different creative team, but the prologue at least is drawn by Tom Grummet and inked by Doug Hazelwood and colored by Helen Visick and edited by Mark Wade, who is, uh, Morrison and Wade have worked a lot together. They were on a team that was trying to sort of pitch a retooling of Superman a, a few years after this. Uh, they worked together on 52, which was like a weekly comic that came out in the wake of another big continuity reboot from DC. So, they're interesting. And also, uh, Wade took over, I think, directly after Morrison's Justice League run. Uh, and he's another writer that I like a lot and uh, has done some interesting stuff as an editor. But yeah, so this is like, I guess it's sort of a retelling of Animal Man's origin. Like when we were reading the first volume, I was like, all you really need to know is that he found an alien spaceship and he got animal powers. And this goes into much more detail, but it has sort of a twist on it. Because he's like testing out his so we know from the end of the previous volume, right, that his powers have gone haywire in the wake of the gene bomb detonated by the Dominators and the big evasion crossover, which is not a thing we got to see in the comic. We just kind of saw the aftermath. Well, I guess we saw the, the prelude when he fights the Thanagarian uh, artist who's trying to create his martyr piece. And then we see the kind of aftermath where his powers are all funky and he has that conversation with that supervillain. Yeah, so this starts out, I guess it's sort of telling you the origin of Buddy and then shows you a little bit of their relationship, his and Ellen's relationship. Yeah. And then you see like the spaceship and... 
But yeah, so he's testing out his powers and he's being observed by these two aliens who look very, you know, if you don't recognize them immediately because you're one of almost all the people on the planet who haven't read the original Animal Man appearances in Strange Adventures, uh, I think it was Strange Adventures, you, uh, you would still notice that they're like notably old school looking, right? They look like 60s sci-fi characters. Uh, and... Like, from the bat, we get kind of a meta thing where they seem to be aware of the... That he's been rebooted. That he's been retooled. That he's a different character than he was when he first appeared. Like, they point out that, like, he's younger. Like, we... I, th- I think we mentioned in the previous volume that he says, like, part of his his uh, motivation to get back into being Animal Man is that he's almost 30. They, they're they talking about, like, this reality stratum and, like, how his powers are messed up. They mention that um, he got these, that he has, some recent event has undone our morphogenetic grasp and cut him loose from the Avatar bestiary. So we get all these terms dumped on us. And I think that the aliens don't have any names. They're just referred to as the yellow aliens. Yeah. Uh, they have Dracula collars, and they're wearing uh, onesies with no pants. And then I guess in the flashbacks that are in between the cutscenes of him practicing, trying to get his powers realigned, and the aliens, you see a version of Buddy and Ellen, and he kind of has like a crew cut, and he's dressed like in the 1950s, and she has like this sort of like... Betty and Veronica look like from like Archie you know she's got the headband and the little fringe so she's kind of looking not as modern as she looks in volume one yeah I mean this is like a thing like now at this point in comics history like it's the late 80s um you know every character that's like super notable in superhero comics has been around for at least like 20 to 30 years if not 40 to 50 years. And so you have this thing where it's like technically the events that happened in their past happened like in this totally different time period where it doesn't make sense for them to have been that person and to have been that age then. So we get to see like OG Buddy from the original Animal Man comics who is older, buffer, tougher, more traditionally masculine. He's got a crew cut. He looks almost exactly like the Silver Age Flash. Yeah, and then he goes hunting with his friend, a different version of Roger, Mm -hmm. and I guess he gets exposed to the alien ship and he gets his powers, and then he starts fighting a tiger and a gorilla that show up. Yeah. And he's like, what's going on? And then his friend shows up and says, oh, there was a train (laughs) wreck in the circus. You know, kind of like that's completely implausible, but you're kind of like, okay, yeah, and then we get the, they find the alien ship, and the aliens are inside, and they're talking about the, this past that Buddy had, and they're commenting on, like, the tropes. This is an interesting kind of, like, metafiction here. Like, it'll get more dramatic, like, at the very end of the volume, we'll have something that's very explicitly, like, referencing that this is a comic. And we have stuff like the Coyote Gospel, which is very clearly, like, we see the pencil coming down. But this is then where they're... They seem to be characters that exist in the universe, but they are aware of the rules of a comic book in a way. But they're not thinking about it in terms of a comic book. And this kind of gets back into that thing we were talking about 
with the Shining family and Klaus, where Morrison, they have this kind of fixation on the, this idea that, like, do you ever read Flatland? No. Flatland is like a, a story about dimensions. Mm-hmm. So there's like, it's about characters that live in a two, on a two-dimensional plane. And they see, like, three-dimensional figures. This is also similar to the... I'm getting all jumbled up. But they they see, like, three-dimensional figures as being, like, this series of two-dimensional slices. Because they can only perceive in two dimensions. And then if you read, like, Slaughterhouse-Five, right? The Tromalfadorians, they see in four dimensions. And they see everything as this, like, chain, right? Where, like, the start of your life is at the front and the end of your life is at the back. And Morrison has this idea that is expressed time and again in their comics that a comic book is essentially a 2D simulation of a three-dimensional universe, which means that a four-dimensional being might potentially see our universe, our perception, our reality as a comic book. Because you can go back and forth through the time, you can fan it out and see all the moments at once. So, they're kind of getting at this idea through these aliens here. Yeah, I I get that. And I, I understand, especially since you said that Morrison is a comic book nerd. And I think you can really tell by the way that he writes that he has they. sort of... They. Sorry. The way that they write that they have a breadth of knowledge about the history of comics and it shows in this. And I can understand... Morrison's kind of conflict with saying, okay, in the comics it says that Buddy became Animal Man 10 years to the start of volume one of their run. Mm -hmm. But that would mean that in a regular time span, since it's now the 1980s, Buddy was exposed in the 1970s. But clearly, according to the history of comics, Buddy was exposed in the 1950s. Yeah. Which sort of causes this conflict about how do you write a modern Animal Man story when technically, if you did that, then Animal Man would be in his 60s. Yeah. But so then Morrison is taking that... This is the best vert. Like, there's so much bad art, and I'll be real, bad comics specifically that come about from nerds taking the thing that they're bothered by or angry at, angry at is the worst version, and putting it into the fiction. But I think this is, like, the best possible version, where Morrison has noticed, as we all do, like you pointed out, this this paradox because of the way serialized stories work. And they have put it into the fiction. Like, the, the aliens... Notice the same inconsistency that Morrison notices, but because they live in that universe, it is like a cosmic problem for them. Right. And I think it's like, there's, in in literature and film especially, there's this sort of concept of verisimilitude where you're supposed to suspend any kind of practical reasoning while you're immersed in this art form. And I think Morrison is saying, what if we don't suspend sort of practical reason And we look at it, like you said, like in a linear way. There has to be a reason why Buddy was exposed to aliens in the 1950s and then exposed to aliens 10 years previous to volume one of of their run. Yeah. I think that really kind of flips it. That's where it kind of 
starts to encroach on the sort of metafiction. And I think it hits it heavier into it. And I think we should have known that he was going to do this, they were going to do this, because the creator issue from volume one is clearly metafiction. Yeah. And I, I think the creator, even if it's not explicitly mentioned that these are machinations of the creator, you can see them, especially when we start talking about one of the most confusing characters that I think is Dr. Highwater and the psycho pirate kind of proto storyline that's starting up. Yeah. Well, I think that's a, when we were talking about the Coyote Gospel, I was saying like, um, oh, I can't remember his name now. The Coyote. I don't know what his name was. I was just referring to him as the Coyote. He he has a he had a name that was like. Let me check my go to resource DC fandom, mm-hmm. which tells me a lot. All I need to know about Animal Man. Because it's like it's like a wily coyote name. It's like something tricksy, tricky coyote or something like that. Um, but I was saying that the coyote is essentially. Um, you know, is kind of a metaphor for all fictional characters. And then is crucified in a way. It's like, well, like, Jesus represents all of humanity, dies for human sins, and the coyote represents all fictional characters, and is crucified on the road for their sins. But, like, this is taking that further, right? Where it's like, okay, well, if that coyote represents, like, all fictional characters, well, like, let's see... The rest of Animal Man essentially becomes Animal Man's Coyote Gospel. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And then there's also this other thing, right? If you take... There's uh, this interpretation of the Gospels, right? Because there's there's multiple ones. They all tell the same story, but they've got different attitudes and different events happen. And so you could argue that, like, the Coyote Gospel is one gospel... And Animal Man is another gospel, but they're essentially the same story told from different perspectives, written at different times for different audiences, even though they're written for the same audience. Uh, And that Animal Man and the Coyote are the same being, in a sense, because they're both creations of Grant Morrison. I don't know. Crafty. I just remembered it. I didn't even have to look it up. It's Crafty. The gospel according to Crafty. Oh, right, right. Okay, so Crafty. So, yeah, so, so Crafty and Buddy, they're the same. That's what I basically what I was getting at. Uh, but yeah, then we, we see more of the flashback. He he fights the aliens. They show up like in the guise of alien conquerors, and they explain that this is them like playing this role to fit into the way this universe worked at the time. And then they resolve that they're gonna meet Buddy again. And we get like a very dramatic full page splash of them where they're like, I wonder if he'll remember us, and that's the end of the prologue. So the yellow aliens have come back because they realize that Gene Bomb has messed with what I, I think they call morphographic morphogenetic graphs from the Avatar bestiary. Right, which is how I guess they specifically targeted Buddy to give him these powers. Yeah, but so it. I think what's happened, what's revealing here though, is that. The reason the gene bomb was even able to affect him is because his past was already fucked up by Crisis. Right. So that's the other thing that Morrison is commenting on here is these inconsistencies. Crisis happened and they rebooted the whole timeline, but they rebooted it and there's all sorts of inconsistencies. It happens every time they do this, 
where it's like they want to keep most of Batman's past intact, but they completely reset Superman from uh, zero. And so it's like, well, what about all the times they interacted? And then they publish year one to rectify Batman's past, and it's like, but you've referenced other stories that had to have happened before that, and it's like creates all these weird inconsistencies. And that becomes an in-universe problem here. And that's what they're trying to rectify. They're, like, trying to bring his past in line with the universe as it exists now. But I also think that Morrison also now sets a precedent where this happens nearly constantly in modern comics. So even though they are commenting on how confusing and how this is a problem... They themselves are now responsible for making this an even thornier problem by trying to address it. Because once they start to address it, other comics start to, I guess, I mean, we saw in Swamp Thing when this sort of infinite crisis went on, it sort of had these ripple effects that it affect different story arcs and trying to like fix them made these cotton, like continuity errors, like you said, but also made it very confusing because if you specifically read one comic series, some of the stuff that they did didn't make sense in the comic series and also caused a confusion because you had no idea what was happening in other series. Like, I didn't read the Infinite Crisis entire story arc in all mm-hmm. the different comics. It's like a massive crossover. Yeah. So... I, I mean, we, of... we saw it. Like, we read Swamp Thing and I had to stop... And take like 10 minutes in the middle of our podcast to explain to you what the fuck Crisis on Infinite Earths was. Because if you were only reading Swamp Thing, which I bet a lot of people were because it was like very critically acclaimed. There's probably a lot of people who didn't normally read superhero comics who were reading it who were like, what the fuck is happening? Why is he on a satellite with the Phantom Stranger? Well, then also in 1989, this is when we talked about X-Files a long time ago. You couldn't go on the internet and, like, get, like, a Wikipedia summary of, like, what happened in Crisis on Infinite Earths or whatever it was called. So you kind of were reliant on just the information that you could compile as a comic book reader. Yeah. So I can understand the frustration that Morrison had at the time that this was written. Yeah, I also think there's, there's, when we're talking about, I don't know if this is a point that I really believe, but it's something I'm thinking now in this moment. Or you were talking about, like, oh, like, these writers all seem to have, like, a really extensive knowledge of comics, and they, they are have a affection for these obscure characters. I want, is that less impressive now? Where, like, if I wanted to, I could just go on the DC fandom wiki and hit random article and find a character that's only appeared in a couple comics and bring them back. Is it less impressive if I do that than if I did, like, than it would have been if I did that in, like, the 90s and brought, like, Atomic Knight back or some shit? Well, I think even randomly reading things on the internet, I I mean like your knowledge of comic books, like you're not even, if you're not on the internet, you still retain that information and you mm. can discuss it and like literally you can talk any topic and bring it into sort of some kind of comic book history. Sure. And I think that kind of knowledge that's what it's like the knowledge that they have in their brain and they Mm -hmm. retain which is impressive as opposed to like as a librarian i think it's fine for you to not have information but knowing how to get information that's a different skill than having the information filed in your brain sure okay so so then we get into the main meat of the issue which is the part that's called fox on the run and it does have a different um creative team 
Um, obviously, Morrison is still the writer, but Chaz Truog and Mark McKenna are the artists. Uh, and Tatiana Wood is the colorist. And Karen Berger is the editor. So the the prologue is edited by a different person than the main meat of the story. That's interesting. Well, I think also it's it's set into the... This gets into the main story arch for the volume. Yeah. So we meet Vixen, who is... Um, I guess there's... I, I'm not quite sure, but there's like a subgroup of superheroes that are like have powers that come from objects like a totem based this is a thing that's being more is being established here this isn't really a thing that would have a connection that would have existed before but yeah she's a um i think she's a a 70s character i think she was she looks very 70s yeah she was in the um one of the lesser acclaimed runs of the Justice League. I think she was in the Detroit era Justice League where like Marsha Manhunter was the leader and Vibe, uh, who was like a break dancer and yet Gypsy is a very unfortunately named character. I think she's in that run. I could be wrong. She's a, um, a model and a superhero. Uh, she has a totem necklace, the Tantu totem. She's in uh, Legends of Tomorrow. I was going to say that because... Um, I had that down there as actually one of my questions about her. But she's depicted as this sort of very sort of, um, like a, I don't know, she's like a sexy woman in a, in a, like a bodysuit and she's got like a a plunging neckline. Yeah. And Wolverine hair, but also with braids coming (laughs) down under, under it. Yeah. She's obviously, I guess she's from Africa. Yeah. She's part of the Zambezi people. That's like her, her backstory. The like the character in Legends of Tomorrow is sort of supposed to be like the grandmother of the TV universe's version of this version of yeah. Vixen. I mean, from my extensive knowledge of watching two episodes <laughs> of Legends of Tomorrow that both had to deal with two women that both had totem based yeah powers. That show runs runs with that concept and brings it out of just like the animal thing too. But yeah, she's being chased by some kind of invisible monstrous animal spirit, but it's being intercut with a British fox hunt. I think this is interesting too because in the volume 1 when Roger like tears down Buddy for being too concerned about animal rights, he specifically mentions two things. One was the fox hunt that he disrupted, and the other one was the breaking into the animal research laboratory. Yeah. Both of which come up in this. Yeah. So, and then at the very, she jumps on a plane, and then at the same time, Buddy grabs the fox and flies it up into the air, which has to be incredibly disorienting for this fox. And then we get, so there's another thing about Morrison. Morrison's a punk, um, and Morrison hates. The British class system. So he gets some real caricatures of upper class British guys. And he's like, so where's the bloody fox? I think what's interesting, though, is the intercut. Like, we don't know at this point that Vixen is a fox-based superhero. Well, if you know who she is, you know that. Right. But there are the, the fox running from the hunt and her running from the creature that is chasing her are intercut. And you can see the similarities between... The kind, so it gives a double meaning to like the whole thing about the fox hunt. Yeah. I also think that, I mean, it's kind of offensive to women that Vixen is a fox-based superhero who's very sexy. And then she's 
from the 70s. So somebody was like, what if we made a foxy lady? That's and 100% <laughs> what it was. I'm a, I I have to believe that that is the case. Uh, yeah, I, I get that. I think that she's a pretty soft... Like, all, taking that all into account, I think she's a pretty solid character. Like, I like Vixen. Well, I think but... Morrison takes her out of that, like, objectified foxy lady superhero from Detroit that's almost like, you know, she could have her own movie or something where she's just kicking men in the face. <laughs> it's weird that she's Vixen. Like, it's, it's weird that her thing is Fox-themed. But, like, she almost... I don't even know if she has Fox powers... Anytime she uses her totem, she never, like, uses the fox. Because what even is that? Like, every, almost every time you see her using the totem, it's, like, gorilla or elephant or something that would be useful in a fight against a supervillain. Right. Um, yeah, because then the, the next sort she of... She should be, like, the spider. Because we find out later that she her supposedly her totem came from a Nazi. Right. Uh, but Whatever. She she's still she is one of many one the next in a long line of people that intrude into Buddy's house when he's <laughs> yes. not home. Now I know why Ellen is so mad all the time and she never wants to answer the door because every time she does there's a weirdo right knocking on it. But yeah, she's hanging out with her friend. I can't remember what her friend's name is. Trisha. Trisha, yeah. Um it's just Roger it turns out to be Roger's She's like Roger's on again, off again girlfriend. I think. No, I think they're married. Are they, they married? The same last name. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, so she stumbles into the house, but then we cut to Highwater, who's going to Arkham Asylum. He's set up a. It, it's weird that they let him do this because he's a physicist. <laughs> and but he has he, like, he's obviously unhinged because he has all these twitches, and he like talks to himself, and he like walks around in a fugue state. But then be like, and he's a physicist, and be like, yes, you can come into our, like, maximum security prison for the criminally insane, well, and just, like, walk around and talk to people. I wonder if maybe they're like, well, let him into Arkham, obviously, because, like, if he loses it, like, he's clearly going to, we'll just push him <laughs> into one of the cells. Because, like, that's where he's going to end up anyway. He's a physicist that's losing it. He's going to build some kind of weird ray gun. Uh, but, so, he's, he's like, talking to this, like, pompous guy. Um, yeah, I guess he's, like, his old college friend or something they went to medical school together some weird thing yeah and he set up this like research thing where he gets to go to arkham and he's going to interview the psycho pirate but before he can do that he gets accosted by the uh the mad hatter who he looks a lot like tom petty yeah he does actually <laughs> yeah uh and he he basically says like hey we're in a comic book and then he's a little bit racist to him uh i think this is also clearly a comment on like british cultural roles or whatever oh yeah yeah because he's the mad hatter yeah yeah and then he he basically is like hey we're in a comic book and he's like what what are you talking about and then they meet the psycho pirate and he's like lose he is completely lost it and i feel like there's definitely a thing here where it's like high water sees like a reflection of himself and the psycho pirate it's like oh no is this what's gonna happen to me and he is going on and on about um He's saying worlds will live, worlds will die, which I think was like a tagline for Crisis on Infinite Earths. That he's like, from like the marketing, that he's like repeating. He says 1 and 2 and S and X and 3 and 4 and Prime, which are designations for parallel worlds in the DC universe. Prime is our Earth. And then like back at like 
before Crisis, Earth 2 was the world where the Golden Age heroes existed, and Earth 1 was the world where the Silver Age heroes existed. And he he's become aware of the idea of continuity reboots and retcons, and has driven himself bonkers with paranoia that if he goes to sleep, they're going to erase him from continuity. Which is not unlikely, because he's kind of like a Z-list villain. Uh, so, like, if you were aware of that, it's reasonable you would be afraid of that if you were him. Uh, he also references um, the Wolfman, which is a... I believe Marvel Wolfman wrote Crisis on Infinite Earths, which is... See, I thought that that was a reference to the Coyote. It could be both. I don't know if the Coyote ever explicitly comes up again, except for maybe, like, a conversation that happens later. But, yeah, and he leaves a message for... High water on the ground, which is like this diary entry about somebody who uh, used to watch like the lights from the hill at night, and they're believed that a giant fox was signaling them, and their parents got them a flashlight that they used to. Uh, is this a story that he is telling about his childhood, or is this because I wasn't I was confused if it was like. A story from the Psycho Pirates' childhood or a story from Highwater's childhood that he didn't understand why the Psycho Pirate knew that because no one else was supposed to know that he did that. It's kind of confusing to me at that point. But I guess it's supposed to be because he's a Psycho Pirate, which implies that his thing is he messes with people's minds. And we know John Highwater is having, like, memory problems. Yeah, I don't want to... I think we'll... It's a spoiler to say who's this, who exactly is telling this story that he's reading. But I think, so it, he gives a note to Dr. Highwater, and when Dr. Highwater opens it, it's a comic book drawing of the last page from the prologue, or one of the pages from the prologue from Animal Man, and you see the yellow aliens, and you see Animal Man, you see Buddy, and then you see the pirate in his mental hospital. And I guess just from looking at this page, Dr. Highwater decides that he has to find Animal Man. Uh, well, yeah, he's been having, like, visions of the animal. He knows about the animal, and he's been seeing him on the news and stuff. So, uh, this, like, like you know, this confirms it. Like, if he's, he's going to continue following this thing that's going on with him, he's going to have to talk, at least talk to Animal Man next. Right. And then we cut to Animal Man arriving, uh, and he walks his house and he sees there's another superhero in there. Of course. Of course. And she's just, like, chilling on the couch, and her and Ellen are having tea. Like, totally normal. So here are, like, okay. So we know that there are two buddy time timelines at this point. There's the previous one from the 1950s, and then there's the current one that's going on. Yeah, and but... we know that the aliens are trying to... Fix the continuity and fix Animal Man's gene bomb issues and sort of realign the continuity to one timeline? Yeah, so the paradox here is there's two timelines, but they ostensibly both lead to this version of Buddy, which is what doesn't make sense. Okay. But uh, Vixen explains, like, that she basically went to him because their powers seem to be... They seem to have basically the same powers, except hers comes through the totem... And his is inherent to his body and then comes from and other animals. Where she's limited to the totems that are represented by her her, ta- her 
necklace thing. So, are, is the computer? I mean, don't answer this if it's going to be a spoiler for the the future. But is the high water psycho pirate slash storyline? Is the confusion coming from the disruption of the timelines because of Infinite Crisis, or is this just a different storyline that has to do more with like psychic mental? It's confusion? it's it's coming from the timeline being fucked up from from okay. Crisis. Uh, yeah, and then this is when she explains that suppose that um, Anansi gave the totem to her ancestors. Yeah, gave it to her ancestors in the world's mourning. Uh, and that uh, her father was killed by her uncle, who is, was this uh, general named uh, Mustafa Maksai, but he is, uh, killed himself. He himself was killed a few months ago. And now the guy in charge of uh, her homeland is this, like, seemingly immortal dude named Hamed Ali. Yes. But I think it's also, it's important to note at this point, too, that there's a conversation between Ellen and Trisha where Ellen reveals that she's having problems remembering things and she's also having problems with like keeping track of time. Yeah. Uh, and then like in the middle of this conversation, um, the cat freaks out and these invisible monsters smash into their house and Buddy and Vixen start fighting them. She throws down like a smoke bomb so they can see them. Mm-hmm. And then one of them, like, like a basilisk or something looks like catches Buddy's gaze and he is like unraveled and disintegrated. And it's really gruesome. Uh, even worse than when he got his arm chopped off. Yeah, because it's like each panel he's getting, like he's a muscle man and then he's a skeleton and then he's like a powder. Mm, it's almost like a three-dimensional being viewing a two-dimensional being. Exactly. Uh, and he's just gone. And then the the aliens, well, one of them, one of the invisible creatures throws Ellen across the room. And then the aliens appear before... Uh, Vixen, and they say they're taking charge now, and that's the end of the issue. Yeah. In issue 11, uh, I think it's the same creative team. Oh, no, it's uh, Doug Hazelwood is working with Truog now, but otherwise pretty m- otherwise the same team as the previous yeah, issue. Yeah, and this one is called Out of Africa. And this one's wild. I think what's interesting, too, I noticed this, too, in all the different, like, the reoccurring vision of Buddy getting his powers goes through the whole volume, but each time he remembers it, the ship looks different. Yeah. Well, because it's coming in alignment with how it's supposed to be now. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so like we see the uh, the alien, he's like doing like surgery on Buddy, but Buddy's like inside of this. Don't they have the best black and white striped bikini bottoms? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're yeah, and they've got like they're wearing like a sleeveless shirt with like a pointy collar, uh, but it's like it's uh, like a slingback. Yeah, but it's kind of like just so you know that this is not related to Marsha Manhunter in any way. <laughs> they have to make them look completely different. Uh, but they've got him in like the template, and he's using this like glove with claws on it to like fix his powers uh and so we get like another yeah we get another vision of his uh origin uh but now like he's got a slightly different outfit on 
like Ellen is slightly updated. She looks more like a sixties woman with like a Jackie Kennedy haircut. Yeah, so you know that it's kind of it's moving that timeline more in line with sort of the eighties buddy that we have now. Yeah, and now the ship looks like more weird and organic. Uh and then they're, like, they're sort of talking about how, like, this problem with Animal Man is connected to, like, a broader problem with the universe. They're talking about how, like, uh, the stress on the continuum is too much, a rational fallout has begun, which I think is, like, their their understanding of continuity errors. <laughs> uh, and then, like, we get, like, a blank page, which is, like, I think supposed to be Buddy in the template. He's like, I'm in the zoo, the biggest ever in all the sense of all the animals. No, it's an encyclopedia. Like, yeah, this that is must the... be the bestiary yeah. template that they mentioned. So this explains the thing we were. I was talking about in the first time, where it's like, Buddy's powers are like symbolic more than literal. Where it's like, he doesn't turn into a bird, but he gets the power of flight because birds are associated with flight. And so that's the thing here. Like, he essentially has access to this catalog of animals and their symbolic powers except we find out that extends beyond animals to just living creatures right but do you think that he in some way consciously or unconsciously looks at like an animal and picks the power because like a bird has other things i think we get almost confirmation later i think in this issue yeah that that is basically what happens um because this very much bring this, by the end of this thing, they bring him kind of in line with like a Swamp Thing style character, where they kind of pull the limiters off of his powers, and it becomes less about oh, what can the hero accomplish with this uh, working under these limitations, and more like how can we use this tool set in the most creative way possible. Uh, but yeah, he gets like returned to existence in a flash of light and now he's got a redesigned costume yes the a is like more angular it's pretty and he's got like this sort of um yeah it was more like a golden blue and black yeah and he's but he's got these like uh like i don't know what you call them this like fluting on like his glove and boots uh that's like a little more sort of like I don't know, it's a little bit more of a modern design. And he's, his goggles are brought in line with the way that um, Bollard draws them on the cover, where they're more angular. Right, and his whole face, there's more of his face exposed. Yeah. Like his, you know, the goggles are just sort of on his face, and then that, like, hood that he used to wear is now sort of just on his ears and his neck. Yeah, so he's back, and his powers work, and they're in Africa... Uh, now and they basically just got like teleported here uh we see they're at the base of or they can see kilimanjaro in the distance and we cut into kilimanjaro and we see that the the beast's helmet and his elixir are there but the white god is not at home he's on vacation yeah he needed to really get his head together after the last issue with him in it yeah and then i guess we see this is what i wanted to ask you we see hamad ali who I mean, really, what could go wrong? He's excavating a sacred site. <laughs> yeah. And that, with a well, giant laser. We can see the shaman guy from the end of the previous one who said that the gods are waking up. Yeah. He's there and he's like haunting this excavation site. Um, 
And trying so to warn them. Is Hamad Ali a pre-existing character? I don't think he is. I think like He's part just of the generic I- bad guy. Well, I think part of the idea with him is that he is a character that's created to be old, but the aliens know that he's new. They know he doesn't actually have the history that he thinks he has. I also want to point out that this on this page that I'm going to show Nate right now where he's talking to the shaman, he has a giant drill. A super phallic looking. Right, and I think this is also the beginning of sort of Morrison's comment on how... Humans oh, are no, like... this is, he is a pre-existing character. He's Buana Beast's arch enemy. Okay, that makes sense. So now Buana Beast is doing his walkabout and getting his head together, and Hamad Ali is digging for something in a sacred site with this driller that looks very phallic, which is just kind of like a car, you know, a comment on how, like, humans are destroying the earth. Yeah. Uh, it's weird that that doesn't come up later when the, when Buana Beast shows up again, when... That they're not like, hey, you left and your villain like went buck wild without you to keep him in check. Uh, but he's got other problems that he's called out for in that <laughs> issue, so it's fun. <laughs> but yeah, so this guy is like the the shaman dude is like telling them not that they can't shouldn't be doing this. He's talking about that there's anger in the ghost country, the voices of the dead shake the world. I think he's supposed to be kind of tapped into the same thing as Psycho Pirate, where he's like aware of all of the people that got erased from existence by the crisis. Uh, and he's clearly, like, connecting with this ship, which is connected to, like, the inconsistencies in reality. And then at the end of this issue, right, Ali just, like, shoots that guy in the head. Or no, that happens later. There's a weird... I don't really understand this part. There's a weird part where Buddy shows up, and he's really horny for Vixen, and he doesn't understand why. I... And then she's like, go eat a banana. <laughs> kind of like... Well, because he's okay. a vegetarian. She's, she's found something that she's... She's found some meat that she's killed, and then she's gonna eat. And he's a vegetarian, and she's like, "Eat a banana." But he's picked up powers from a gorilla, and he's gone too far. He doesn't realize how powerful he is now, and he's accidentally picked up. Not I. I like this as like a clue into how his powers can work now, because he hasn't just picked up the obvious thing from the gorilla, which is like strength. One of the powers that he's picked up from a gorilla is the ability to interpret nonverbal communication, which is like that's cool. Uh, but it makes him, like, way too aware of her, and he starts, like, freaking out, because he's reading so much into, like, every movement that she makes and the way she's eating, and it gets dangerously horny, and then luckily they're interrupted by a giant crocodile tank. (laughs) I like how also he's like, oh, I can't be turned on by this hot vixen superwoman because I'm very respectful of women, and I try to treat them as equals. He's like, yeah, he's married. (laughs) Uh, And I love this panel of, like, the giant crocodile tank with, like, a light coming out of its eye and he just says thank you god in the <laughs> captions because it interrupted this and then they're assaulted by this woman who's wearing a mask and buddy is fighting the tank and vixen's fighting this woman and she loses the fight and then buddy gets trank darted and they're both captured by uh he who never dies hamed ali and then we cut back to ellen and she's like erased from existence yeah, I think, I guess it's like, a, it's the same thing as like in volume one where there's like, Ellen has her own story arc that's like peripherally related to the main story arc. So, yeah. But this is what I was talking about when I, I had a note here that said, the woman who attacks Vixen, her name is Taboo. Yeah. And she obviously is another totem-based superhero. And that's what I had the question, it says Taboo slash Vixen totem-based heroes 
on Legends of Tomorrow, question mark, and I guess that's... Are they the characters, or are they just similar sort of implied story arcs? I mean, I think that just that storyline is just inspired by okay. this one, but it's less interested in the meta stuff. She's a new character. She hasn't shown up before this. Yeah. So then, I guess Ellen is having memory problems, and I think at one point it's sad that she forgets that she has children. Yeah, because the earlier version of them didn't have kids, and now they have kids, and it's like the, the irrational fallout is like fucking up her personal timeline, and then it goes like into overload, and she just gets blinked out of existence. But then Buddy and Vixen are being held prisoner by Ali, who's taken Vixen's totem, and he's going to leave them in this room to, like, stew. Yeah, it puts them in this bomb shelter that's so thick Mm -hmm. that they, so Buddy can't pull any animal powers. Yeah, it's so far underground, and and everything is so, like, shielded. Like, he can't even do, like, the shit that he did uh, when he was fighting the Rat Man, where he pulls the earthworms out of the earth uh and the meanwhile the aliens are like trying to stabilize reality but they're getting assaulted by the phallic laser drill so that's when we start to realize that what is in that sacred site is the ship yeah and there's also you didn't bring it up but they keep mentioning something called the traveler that's i think that's the ship right but in the previous issues they talk about the traveler and you're not quite sure if the traveler is like a being that they worship, or if it's a different character, and then you finally realize that Hamid Ali is trying to unearth the ship, mm-hmm. which I guess the aliens are still in, and that's where they were under the ground. Yeah. Well, because we, fix... we learn, like, what they talk about is, like, they're not really aliens. They're, like, these other dimensional beings. They take memory forms to fit into the rea- mm-hmm. reality. So it's like they needed to push Vixen and animal man together so they took the form of those animals but then they kind of lost control because they're in the story too so they're susceptible to the role they're supposed to play and they take the form of the aliens because that's like easier to process than like we are extra dimensional beings with no physical form it's like superheroes understand aliens and they understand that aliens have knowledge that normal people don't i think this is also too where you realize clearly that taboo's powers they're animal-based powers, but they come from the masks that she wears. So when she puts on a different mask, she has a different animal power. Yeah, and I have no idea what to make of this, but she puts on a glove with claws, and it looks like the glove that the alien is using to do surgery on Animal Man. I want, Maybe they're just supposed to be reflections of each other, because they're all connected to this avatar beastry thing i don't know but that's a symbol that happens but i think it turns out later i mean this really isn't a spoiler because if you if you read volume one you probably want to read all of it that the totem based powers that the women have and buddy's animal bestiary powers both come from the aliens in the traveler ship yeah yeah so even though she said it comes from a nazi the yellow aliens made those totems. Well, yeah. Well, the, the yellow alien, at one point, basically says that he was a Nazi. Yeah. But, yeah, so, like, the uh, Taboo comes... Like, Ali and Taboo show up, and they're going to kill them. And Buddy has taken the power of duplication from the, like, bacteria in his gut. And I think this is where you... It's clear what you said, that he's now more sophisticated enough to select the power 
that he wants. Yeah. And I think he totally gets owned by Vixen, who says, like, why didn't you just take the animal powers from her mask? Yeah, well, that's <laughs> it. They, they fight their way out and escape. She gets her totem back, and she sets a bomb to blow up the masks. And then... Uh, when they're, they're, he's like, oh, you're like so much more pragmatic than me. Why don't I think of stuff like that? And she's like, it's the same reason you went for bacteria instead of her mask. And then they run away from an explosion, like cool people. Uh, and. It's kind of like comedic in a way. Like there's like a, he punches like one of the soldiers and he goes like wonk. Mm. And then they're having this sort of like chase that's kind of like a, you know like one of those cartoon chases where all these people it's like a scooby-doo thing where they're chasing each other up and down the hallways yeah and then they get out and they're being chased by a jeep and then they see like the sky is going all funky and they realize they have to go to the excavation site uh they're chased there by ali but when they get there they realize like things have gone completely wrong and, like, the energies from the ship are emanating outward. They've erased a bunch of people's faces. But I think also, at one point, Buddy picks up Vixen and flies her out. And it's kind of like like a mirror to when he, like, the fox. Yeah, when he saved the fox. Yes, yes. Uh, but he does it in a very respectful way. Because he respects women, even though she's, like, a foxy lady. Yeah. But he's, like, realizes that he's got to go down into the site and... She stays behind briefly to try and hold off Ali. Uh, and he gets down there. He sees, like, the excavators have died. There's all these bubbles with, like, visions of his timeline in them. Uh, he starts to see, like, a map of reality. He sees the older version of himself with the crew cut in one of the bubbles. And then the alien greets him. But it cuts back to Vixen and, uh, that sh- and like, Ali shows up. And that witch doctor, like... Tells him, like, you know, through metaphor, like, what's happening. And he says, the ghost voices cry out, join us, man who cannot die, the dead of many worlds, we who were but never were. Like, that's what I'm saying. I think he's tapped into the people that got erased. But I think also it's interesting that Hamad Ali now, as he gets more and more frantic and the fight continues, he becomes more and more animalistic. And in the beginning, it was depicted more as, like, a human. And then by the end, he almost looks sort of like... Some kind of like ape or like a chimpanzee or something, and he's kind of like he's got these red eyes, and he's kind of got like this like frenzy, frenetic energy about him, where he's becoming more and more like animalistic and getting yeah. back to like his base sort of. Yeah, but also I think like with him, what happens to him is like our first taste of this other idea that Morrison is cooking up of like trying to push the universe forward in a more progressive way, but doing it within the fiction, where it's like. The comic is kind of telling Ali, like, you're an outdated concept. Like, you don't work anymore in this universe. Come join us. Come be erased from reality because we don't need Hamed Ali in this universe anymore. And in defiance of that, he shoots the shaman in the head who dies smiling. Uh, Well, I think it's also saying that, like, this sort of borderline sort of, like, racist sexist kind of like setting is like no longer accepted because Hamadi Ali is kind of like in today's culture would be considered a very offensive character. Yeah, that's why I think that they get that. Like that's kind of what the, his story is about in this. But everybody ends up in the alien ship. And this is when the alien uh he 
he, she's like calls the alien out for killing a guy when she was running from them and he's like uh he had no background no name an incidental character <laughs> like they're aware that it's like fiction and they're like that guy didn't exist no one knows what his deal was he was only on that page for that moment and it's again them being like aware of the comic book structure without necessarily thinking about it in those terms uh and then because like the ship is like outside of time Vixen and Taboo have this fight that will just go on forever. Right. Again, like, I think kind of a reference to the way comics work. Um, and then the alien basically explains everything to Animal Man. He's like, you know, this is our ship. Uh, we take these different memory forms to interact with the surface. Uh, in the form of Anansi, the spider god, we brought the Tantu totem to mankind. They made the helmet and the elixir of the beast, and they intended his creation. Uh, they explain that he, like, didn't survive the explosion he died and they placed his spirit in the template and grafted the essences of the beast avatars grafted his as your essence and the essence of the beast avatars are already there again very swamp thing now we find out that he's like a totally new body that animal man is essentially a different person in a way than buddy was then Uh, he says like put your hand in this like weird machine so we can fix this continuity issue. Yeah, so they fixed him. He's, like, aligned. And so the idea is they'll put him in this machine and they'll use his memories of how the world is supposed to be to fix the problems with how the world is. And so we get a, one last version of his origin. And this is the one that, like, clearly takes place, like, in the 70s. Yes. He's, like, a young punk with spiky hair and a leather jacket. He's got, like, a Ramones t-shirt on at one point. Well, we see uh, young Roger, and he's got long hair. And it's like, (laughs) oh, Roger, like, grew up and became, like, this slick Hollywood guy. But he was, like, a grungy punk, too. And he's the one who found the ship again. Yeah, and then Ellen has her, like, long 70s hair and she's wearing like a wrap dress so she's very she's got like a square dad who doesn't approve of buddy because he's like this like rebellious young man uh they ali tries to attack the alien and uh he tries to shoot him in the head which like doesn't work and then he he has a giant head yeah and then he says a minor character old-fashioned and melodramatic best forgotten your story ends here and he erases and that's what i'm talking about like this is like in universe them the realizing like oh this guy doesn't work anymore let's get rid of him. I like he's that. problematic. Let's cancel him. Yeah, I I like that. And in in sort of like in a mimic of the way that Buddy was disintegrated, we see him and he's like a fully fleshed out character. Then it becomes a line drawing. Then it becomes like the 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 sketch kind of like human form that you start mm-hmm. with when you're drawing a comic and then it's like snap and he's gone. Yeah. And then the, the aliens are like, we're remember terrible times are coming. Be careful, be strong. And they teleport them back to the surface and they're standing around all of Ollie's dead soldiers. And buddy's like, I think the good guys won. <laughs> uh, and that's the end of the issue. You'll move on to the next one. Yeah. So then the next one, What's it called? Hour of the Beast? Yes. I think this is just a great issue of a superhero comic. It's exciting. It's tense. It comments on real world issues and has something to say about them. It has something to say about comics and the history of comics. It pushes the universe forward in a progressive way. 
And it's a complete story while also being part of this longer ongoing series. Like, I think it's just a really superb issue of superhero comics. I can imagine that this issue, when it came out in 1989, was completely relevant. Because it deals a lot with, like, apartheid and the way, the sort of struggle in South Africa at the time. Because it was a big issue, you know, where people were fighting for their human rights. Mm-hmm. And, and it was kind of like a political movement. There was a lot of interest outside of Africa to support the changes that were happening. And kind of bringing awareness to the way that, you know, Native Africans were being treated by these sort of colonial... I mean, it's perfect for you because it definitely deals with colonialism in a big and obvious way but I think it really it's sensitive to the issue and I can imagine that the issues that they were bringing up were sort of relevant and culturally like important at the time now we have to let Floyd in because he's knocking at the door hey buddy uh yeah yeah I think it's still very relevant now because like the way it starts is with the newscast about riots that are happening and about and it's commenting directly on this cycle of like the police instigate violence uh the protests turn into riots there's this worry that continued protests will lead to more violence which will be used as a justification for more violence but then we also see like the end of this newscast it says uh that report was compiled under south african government restrictions and we see that even that horrific moment is a sanitized version, uh, you know, of what's happening. Even that report that doesn't is propaganda. And we see the reality, which is so much more horrific. And we're introduced to, like, very briefly on the, you know, the page after that to our... Uh, oh, this is the same creative team as the last issue, I, I think. Yeah. Chuag and Hazelwood, Tatiana Wood, John Costanza lettering. We are introduced to a character who's going to be really important for this issue, who is... Uh, Martin? Yeah, and I think it's, it's it's really... It's sad in a lot of ways because, I mean, this... Here in the United States, just this last summer, we had sort of a very contentious summer where a lot of information and a lot of sort of exposure to the sort of... Well, I guess there's really no way to sugarcoat it. The cops are corrupt. Yeah. They abuse their power. They abuse the people that live in the country who are most vulnerable. And this became a huge issue with Black Lives Matters and yeah. the killing of George Floyd. And I think that this sort of reading this, which took, which was written in 1989, it's sad to say that this is still relevant. Yeah, I mean, it's like, go listen to our Destroyer episode. We talk a lot, a lot about that. And I, like, predict that Destroyer will be depressingly relevant you know, 20 years from now, and then we're reading this, and it's depressingly relevant. Uh, But I think it's also one of the notable things is that, like, you know, those protests and stuff, they happened almost entirely because, like you said, that stuff was exposed. People had videos, um, and it spread on social media, and it spread on the news, and people got to see firsthand the brutality that was happening. And Martin's motivation in this issue is that he is trying to do that. He doesn't have the internet, he doesn't have a smartphone, but it's about a guy trying to get photos of the brutality and the crimes against humanity that are happening 
out to the public so people can see them. Yeah, so Martin is an activist. He is um, like a community activist. He's a photographer. Yeah. And he's working to sort of, like you said, bring awareness to what's happening. And part of the plot line is that he has a roll of film that he wants to send to the United States so that he it can be put in the media without the government's restriction. But I think before we get into the issue, I think it's interesting because the plot line is is that the Bawana Beast has realized that he's outdated and problematic. Well, also I think too, and he, he at some he kind of hints to it very strongly that as a white man. He may not be the best person to be the Buana Beast because Buana Beast is supposed to speak for the animals and speak for the culture that he lives in. Yeah. He's an entitled white man who may not be the best representative for what the superhero should and could represent. And I think this is interesting because he's kind of like... I mean, we didn't talk a, at all about Black Panther and the role of, like, the cultural significance of when Black Panther came into publication and the influence that it had on African-American creators. Yeah. But I think what this is saying is that, like, we made a mistake making a white man be the Buana Beast, and now we need to fix that while we're fixing other continuity issues. So he decides that he wants to retire and he's going to seek his replacement. Yeah, so Buddy, heading home from the pre- events of the previous issue, runs into, what's his name, Maxwell? I like how he flew to Africa, but he has to take a plane home. Well, he got teleported to Africa. <laughs> oh, he got tele- That's right, he got teleported. So he runs into Mike Maxwell, who very pointedly, he looks like the, the OG, that animal man, that like masculine white blonde guy with a crew cut. Yeah, he's like an explorer, sort of an Alan Quarterman. He's got the explorer outfit on and a big hat. And yeah. He's very manly. But he runs into him at the airport and he's like, yeah, like, I took a lot of time to process what had happened. And we talked about how, like, tragic that storyline is, that opening four-part storyline. And he's realized that, like you said, that he doesn't, There, he's time for him to retire. They comment on this thing with, like, superheroes where they're like, it's funny that we're supposed to be like the People say superheroes are the next evolution of humanity, but every time we meet up, we just fight with each other. And he's got to find a successor. Of course, I like in true, like, inspired by Hemingway, he lives in Kilimanjaro, and he's very masculine, and he goes there. Yeah, he says, like, it's become impossible for him to be blonde. And he's not saying, like, I'm a problematic idea, but it's like, he gets that. Like, he gets the times of change. And he's been putting off this ritual that's supposed to choose his successor, uh, they compare it to the Dalai Lama, and he asks Animal Man if he wants to come with him, and he's like, yeah, sure, dude. Yeah, I don't need to get home. Um, My wife is having memory problems. She can't remember her own kids. I have two. Yeah, I also, <laughs> he has two kids, but he can just fuck around in Africa, whatever. But, I mean, this is not an inconsistency. Like, he gets called out <laughs> for being like this later in the comic. Um, so they go south to Tanz- Tanzania, the home of the beast, uh, and they get up in the mountain, and he drinks the elixir one last time, and he has, like, visions... Of, like, everyone on the continent. Like, he... This is, like, a thing that Morrison is really into. Like, the superhero power is, like, forcing this, like, over-empathy on you. Uh, we'll probably cover All-Star Superman at some point, but that has a point where someone gets Superman's powers, and they're like, oh, oh God, I can feel every living creature. And we see a little bit of that with Swamp Thing, too. I, I just like this this kind of thing. And he realizes that 
he's found a successor, and then it immediately cuts to this Martin guy. So we know that he's like he he's going to be the successor, and he's making the deal with this American journalist to smuggle the photographs inside of his camera back to America. And as he's leaving, he's like all like cautious about like oh they're going to find out I'm doing something subversive. And then he leaves, and he gets a beat up and accosted by the police. Not because he was doing something subversive, but just because he's a black guy. Yeah. Well, I think that's what it is. I mean, there's clearly pointing out that this sort of ruling class police are completely... I mean, we see one of the characters later on who solely is just a corrupt police officer. Yeah, and so they realize who he is, and we get this dude... uh, What... Uh, Vandervoort, right. who is like this representation of apartheid Africa, who is this cruel jailer and police officer, and he's super racist and super cruel, and he says that they found out about the photographs and they're going to pick up Mr. Quinn at the airport, that's the journalist, and he starts beating up Martin and giving him this like speech about like just degrading him, like, and... Talking about his white entitlement. Yeah. But the whole time, he want, he's planning this sort of murder of Martin where he's going to make it look like it's a jailhouse suicide. Yeah, they're going to they're gonna use him to cause another um, public, like, outrage. Good. And then they're going to use that to lure this activist uh, bishop, Archbishop Mogatusi... Right. out so they can arrest him and then presumably kill him in jail or at least just hold him. I think he's kind of a kind of standing for like a Nelson Mandela yeah, kind of he's figure. De- yeah, he's definitely sort of a, he's also a community activist, which I think at that time might not have been a term, but it's a term now. I mean, I have no idea. But but yeah, he's like an important figure. Uh we see him in the opening news story like addressing people and they want to like lure him out so they can arrest him for addressing an illegal gathering, and then they'll have him as a political prisoner. And this Vandervoort guy tells Martin about the, like, unicorn. Yeah. Like, how he was obsessed with the story of the unicorn, where they would use the virgin to lure the unicorn out, and then they would kill it. And he's clearly like, you know, uh, Mogatusi is the unicorn, and Martin is the virgin, and he's the hunter. And he ties a noose and, like, tries to get him to kill himself. My favorite is, like, Buddy and Maxwell show up, and Buddy, like, jump kicks him. <laughs> yeah, they rip open the jail cell and, <laughs> and like, you know, karate kick Vandervoort. And, like, immediately Maxwell's like, hey, man, you're the new beast. And he's like, what? <laughs> um, and this, this is one of those things that's, like, both good and bad about superhero comics, where it's like, this is really dark and fucked up, and Vandervoort is, like, almost cartoonishly evil. But it's like, we've talked about this before. I feel like a lot of times with these kinds of characters, it's not that cartoonish. This is real. This would happen. Like, this is how a guy would treat a dude in these in a prison like this. And it's, superhero comics give you this great feeling of, like, vindication when, like, the second before the awful thing happens, two dudes rip open the jail cell and karate kick the bad guy. But it's also this thing where it's like, you gotta remind yourself, like, that doesn't happen. I like that when so then they go like they're hiding out like at like a sort of a like a homeless camp or or some kind of camp and Maxwell's like telling him about the Buana Beast and he's kind of like my favorite I love this part where he goes Buana Beast hey that's 
white imperialist title has got to go. And then it's kind of like... I love this conversation that they have. Because he's like explaining like the Buana Beast is this like powerful mystical thing and you have this responsibility and like this is what you know, you get to fuse animals together and he's like, that's weird. Um, and then he tells them this story about like, you know, when they were kids, they had this walkout to protest being taught Africans in school. And he was like, this is a story about his radicalization, right? Mm-hmm. He was not, he didn't care. He just like wanted a day off from school. So he did the walkout. And then in response to this peaceful protest that to him was just a way to get out of school, they're assaulted by the police and he ends up getting like blinded with tear gas and shot in the leg and he's like, where were you when that happened, dude? Like, you're supposed to protect Africa, and where the, where were you? And he's like, you know, uh, where was the African hero when African children were dying? I, I tell you, it won't happen again. And then Maxwell starts going off about it not being politics, and it's like, man, this is another conversation. It happens all the time, where he tries to be like, it's not about politics, this is a higher, nobler thing, and he's like, everything is political. Every You know, the fact that you don't want to be political is a political decision, and then he says this great line at the end, right before he takes the elixir, where he says, today's politics is tomorrow's mythology. And then the event happens, and there's this, like, tense standoff between the, you know, the police and the protesters. And to avoid getting arrested, Mogatusi broadcasts to them rather than appearing before them. Uh, but they realize that that means he's probably still nearby, but then Maxwell puts himself, this is good shit, he puts himself between the police and the protesters. And he's like, if you shoot these people, you're going to have to shoot me, and it's going to be a lot harder for you to explain the death of an American. And Vandervoort just doesn't care, and he shoots Maxwell. And then before the violence can erupt, Bunny <laughs> digs a trench in between the cops and the protesters and pops out like a little mole. Uh, but Vandervoort is tracked down Mogatusi to the radio station that he's broadcasting from. But before he can kill him, uh, he turns around and sees a unicorn, which is like clearly a zebra and like some kind of gazelle fused together with like a twisted horn and it kills him. And then through like the mist of, I guess it's like the tear gas or whatever, Animal Man and Maxwell have have sort of re- connected Maxwell's just got like his arm is just wounded and then Martin emerges from the mist as the beast uh and he looks awesome he reveals that he is now he's going to be the freedom beast instead of the Buana beast and then he asks him what happened to the Vanderbilt guy and he goes he died he died of a rare disease (laughs) symbolism (laughs) this is kind of like I guess it's pre-dating but it's sort of a comment on like this boomer thing about like Millennials ruin everything. Like, he comes out and he's like, no, we're not going to be the Buana Beast. We're going to be the Freedom Beast and we're going to fight for, like, justice. So, you know, societal justice. And, like, this old way of doing things is now gone. But that's what, yeah, but that's the thing I was talking about where it's like, you know, this is commenting on the history of comics with, like, these white, culturally appropriate characters. It's moving things forward by giving us a more, you know, just social justice-minded black hero. I mean, I don't know what a... I can't speak for black people. I have no idea what the actual response is. I, this feels much better than the Buana Beast It feels like it, an attempt to fix, sort of, like you said, this I'm history little, of cultural appropriation. And this character sticks around. 
he he joins the Justice League at one point. I'm a little bit bummed. I wish we had gotten like this setup is cool. This idea like it seems like there's gonna be like there should be a Buana Beast ongoing series where he's fighting for social change in Africa and there's like this weight of mythology around him and you have Maxwell there who's like his ally and he's trying to he he's you know this more like high-minded oh it's a mythical thing and and Martin is the more grounded guy and they butt heads but they work together uh but we never really get that which is a little bit disappointing I, I wish we had gotten that comic I mean we still could potentially um I like at the end of this, it's almost like, it's definitely like some kind of like Spider-Man thing where it turns out that Buddy had the film and he takes it to the Daily Planet and you see like the editor from the, whose name is Perry White, the editor. Yeah, Superman's boss. Yeah, he's like, what about these pictures? And it turns out they're like pictures of like a dog and something. No, that guy's the, he's like the security minister Okay. for South Africa. They switch out the photos so he gets vacation photos from the reporter. And Buddy takes the evidence to Perry White at the right. Daily Planet so that he can publish it. Yeah, and it's kind of like this like one-two switch, you know. So they get the photos out anyway. And also, he doesn't realize it, right? Because he doesn't know Superman's secret identity. But this is kind of a payoff to the thing from the first time because he has essentially given himself a team up with Superman. <laughs> yeah. He just doesn't realize that it's not that it's the same dude. But also, I think it's this like you bring that up, and that makes a good point. We see a much more confident Animal Man in this issue, where he's not so much worried about like is he going to fit in? You know, is he like important to other superheroes? What is his like? you know, persona that he's putting out in the, you know, in society. He's just sort of doing his own thing and being his own buddy. And he seems much more comfortable being Animal Man the way that he is. Yeah. So this, like, this next issue is a little weird. I don't, like, it's less of a complete story than the other ones. But it's basically, like, there's something haunting the Baker household which appears to be some kind of other version of Animal Man. Maxine sees him. I think this also, and this is what I brought up in the first issue, of the two children that Buddy has, I think Maxine is the most sort of sensitive to the powers yeah. that Animal Man has. That Yes. And that, I don't remember how much that comes up here, but definitely later writers run with that and make her kind of like his successor. Um, but yeah, she sees him and he seems to think that she can't see him. Uh, and he's surprised when she does. We get this like dream sequence of a guy wandering around, um, in the rain, having like a poetic discussion with himself near the canal. And he, it's like this pale figure and he sees Highwater sleeping in his dream and wakes him up. Uh, and that's like... You know, high water's inching closer to Animal Man. Uh, there's, like, the, with the haunting thing, it's like, what's the... Cliff and his friends, like, use a Ouija board, and it's like... What does the Ouija board end up saying? It says 927, which yeah. is a recurring sequence of numbers. It shows up in their calendar, it shows up, like, raindrops pouring down from the window. So this sort of number is important. But I think what's interesting is that 
Maxine sees her father in the yard and Ellen looks out the window and sees a man who she can't tell what it is and she runs out to rescue Maxine and she brings her into the house and as she brings her into the house the phone rings and it's Buddy and he's telling Ellen he's at the airport. Yeah. So obviously who Maxine saw even though she repeatedly tells her mother it's her father Ellen is upset because she knows that Buddy's actually in Africa. The silhouette looks like him. It's weird. It's it's not def- clearly the old version, he... but he's got like more of like a high top, like high and tight haircut. But he's got the jacket and he's got like boots, yeah. like real boots, not like the bottom of a superhero costume. Yeah, like motorcycle like boots. So it's like not, it's weird. There's no real indication we have here of exactly what, he seems to be another version of Buddy or Animal Man, but that's all we really have to go on. Um, we get more weird inconsistencies, like, uh, Ellen is painting, and her, like, uh, rinse jar, like, disappears and then reappears further away. Something else disappears from, like, behind her. Cliff's friend's, like, chocolate milk explodes, uh, while they're doing the Ouija board. And then Ellen's paranoia reaches a peak, and she grabs a knife and ends up pulling it on Buddy, who arrives. And he looks around and he can't find anything. And he, they see the dude appear in the window in the rain. And when he goes to confront him, he sees him and he seems to understand who he is, albeit briefly. And he says, I know you. When I was 10, my God, I saw you. I know you. And then he fades away. And the last thing that happens in this issue is the 927 is on their door in the rain. The other thing that happens with this issue is we see this, like, government agent guy assassinate a woman. Yeah, and I think also you see John Highwater. He's decided that he's going to go talk to Animal Man. Yeah, so Buddy chases after this, like, specter. The issue is called Spooks, which is like, oh, there's the government guy, and there's this, like, ghost. And he chases after him into the rain, but he doesn't find anything. But the next issue, uh, I, th- I think is much better. Uh, issue 15... Which is, what is it called? Uh, The Devil in the Deep Blue Sea. Uh, And this one, we get the return of a couple characters that Buddy was on the Forgotten Heroes with. We get Dane Dorrance of the Sea Devils, who I referenced earlier, and Dolphin, um, who are both ocean-based figures. So what essentially happens in this is there's this... Wait, before we start, let me just... Dolphin is a female superhero, Mm -hmm. and she, for some reason, is dressed like Daisy Duke. And this is the question I have. Why is she wearing... Jean shorts in the ocean? Jean shorts in the ocean when it's, like, totally the right time to bring out a woman wearing, like, a wetsuit. Because she's supposed to... I think her deal is she's, like, um... She's, like, supposed to be, like, a jungle girl archetype except in the ocean i think she was raised by dolphins oh my god i can't really remember what exactly her deal is her and dane both end up becoming uh secondary characters in the peter david aquaman run in the 90s does she wear jean shorts in that i think she just always does that's like her look yeah i don't know it seems really uncomfortable this is a problem i have with the justice league movies too is that like Aquaman always wears jeans in those. And it's like, that's the worst thing to wear. 
Yeah, she fell overboard from a cruise ship and was saved from drowning by a mysterious alien race who abducted her to use as an experimental prototype for a subaquatic humanoid race. In the course of these experiments, she acquired various biophysical adaptations similar to ocean-themed fauna forms or mariner races. Uh, when she w- they abandoned the experiment, she escaped their underwater lab and was feral, eventually finding her trademark short blue jeans and white shirt inside a sunken ship. <laughs> So ridiculous. Okay. Yeah. So this is this is the issue where Morrison is like, now I'm going to address some like eco justice. Like I already I dealt with apartheid. I made my comment on that. Now I'm going to start to deal with these sort of outdated traditions of like marine mammal like hunting. It's kind of like a definitely like a Greenpeace kind of eco terrorism. St- story yeah so basically what happens with this issue is there's this this island off the coast of iceland i think the Faroe islands where they have this tradition where when the dolphins are migrating past them they drive them to the shore and kill and slaughter the dolphins and it was originally a thing that was done for food and resources but now they don't need that anymore and they still do it for fun and as a tradition and it's horrific the dolphins are portrayed as being very are dolphins are very intelligent they're portrayed as very intelligent in this the story cuts back and forth between buddy and the internal monologue of a dolphin and so dane durance of the sea devils the sea devils were like they weren't like superheroes they were like seafaring adventurers with a submarine they were like explorers and treasure hunters and he has become this, like, Greenpeace guy who, like, intervenes in these situations because he's realized he has a responsibility to protect the oceans. And so he's teamed up with this other activist from the area who opposes the dolphin slaughter. And they've called in Animal Man to help them. Um, just an update. These dolphin slaughters still go on. Ooh. In fact, there was even one in 2020. Oh, well, that's not and good. And they kill an average of 150 dolphins and whales per year. But the conflict is is that the people who live on the Faroe Islands claim that this is a cultural mm-hmm. event similar to like the First Nations um, relationship with whaling, which is kind of like not true, but I think it's a huge like env- it's still today an environmental and an animal rights. Um, conflict that happens every year. Yeah, and that's the conflict here, too, where they claim that it's this tradition and what right do these outsiders have to fuck with their tradition, And but then we also see that, like, Morrison's perspective is that, like, well, the dolphins are intelligent, too, and the dolphins don't give a sh- that Like, wh- they don't have a ritual where they decide to get killed by you. But like, I think also there's a sub-story here where you see from the point of view of the dolphin, which is kind of like a little bit heartbreaking. Yeah, I mean, this is all very, like, Ring of Endless, like, kind of like... But it's the same thing as the apartheid is- issue. There's this sort of very masculine, evil man who is, like, the nemesis who wants to continue the fight. And then there's these... Angor Nielsen, who's like a big hunter guy. Yeah, and he's wearing like a giant thick fisherman sweater. And he's got... Same thing. I think every time that there's a man who's evil in the Morrison comic, he has to look like Ernest Hemingway in some way. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what he has against Hemingway, but for some reason they all look... I like this too because there's a lot of like really great 
knitwear in it, which mm-hmm. is very interesting. They have a lot of great watch caps and fisherman sweaters and sort of... One guy has both on, so it's pretty great. Yeah. But also, just to be clear, they're working with this guy, Johannes, who is the local who opposes the dolphin slaughter. He also looks like Hemingway. He's got like a big... He also kind of looks like Jacques Cousteau. He's got like a big, thick beard and like he's balding, but he's got long hair. Yeah. Um, And then Buddy shows up like just Buddy. (laughs) Yeah, it is the Animal Man costume. Uh, and so they come up with this plan. The dolphin is also already there. She's been, like, called by the dolphins or whatever. And so they come up with this plan where Buddy and Dolphin will use uh, sonar to lure the dolphins away from the shore. And then Dane and Johannes on the boats will run interference. And things start to go awry. Oh, yeah, because they're, like, hunting them with these giant harpoons. Yeah, well, Nielsen realizes that. And this is, like, should be the, his first indication that this is fucked up. He says, like, a dolphin uh, will, no, will, no dolphin will leave an injured comrade behind. And so he understands that they have, like, solidarity with each other, but he still fires, he manages to, from a distance, fire a harpoon into a dolphin, which stalls them there at the beach, um, because they don't want to leave this dolphin behind. So then Buddy, in rage, sinks the fishing boat. And we see the dolphin, like, mourning for the dying dolphin, and some of the dolphins end up getting forced to the beach and people start attacking them and then like Dane just opens fire over their heads with a machine gun and this is he's like self-identified as an eco-terrorist like he's just like he's lost his faith that like people can be convinced not to do this shit he's he is believes in only in direct action and uh he has this standoff with Nielsen who like rises out of the water holding like a young dolphin and he's like, starts, he stabs it, and he's like, this is what I think of your environmentalism. And it's Buddy brutal. picks him up, carries him over the ocean, and drops him into the water. Oh, you didn't mention at the one point that he shows up with a machine gun. That's what I said. He opens okay. fire over them yeah. with a machine gun to stop them from slaughtering the dolphins, and then Nielsen has his standoff with them after that. And then Dolphin and the dolphins sort of go away, and they're, they're talking about how, like, you know, we're going to suffer some consequences from this, and Dane's like... Look, if I get to stay out of jail, I'm doing this again next year. Like, I really like him in this. Yeah, he's he a cool definitely character. becomes like a sort of. He is like, like you said, he's an eco terrorist, and he just ends up being like, he is what like Greenpeace is now. Like, you know, he is fighting any way he can to stop these sort of crimes, these mass crimes against the animals. Yeah, and this is another thing. Like, I like this. It's like he kind of did with Maxwell in the previous one, like updating these old characters and giving them these like more relevant motivations, um, which are cool. And then he's like, hey, what happened with Anger? I don't, I don't know if I should ask about it. And Buddy's like, I lost my temper. I gave him to the fishes. And then we get this sequence where the dolphin sees him drowning and takes pity on him and on humanity as a whole. At one point, the dolphin's talking about, like, oh, poor humans, like, trapped in these clumsy bodies. And, like, one day they'll understand and they'll go to the ocean and shed their limbs uh, and the dolphin saves him and brings him back to shore. Well, yeah, and then he kind of, like, in this sort of, like, sort of moralistic moment, he says, like, you know, our way is different. Mm-hmm. And then, so then you kind of get this look like maybe there's going to be, Angor's going to have some kind of redemption, but you you know he's not going to. But he said, like, the dolphin will never leave an injured comrade behind. And then the dolphin doesn't leave him behind. And it's like, he's got to reckon with this fact that, like, he killed these dolphins and apparently the dolphin still thinks of him as a comrade 
Yeah, and I think that's that's the comment on like animal rights. Like you know, you we man treats animals like they're servants, and you know we are entitled as higher beings to do whatever we want to these animals. And Morrison is saying like these animals have feelings and thoughts and culture and different sort of moralistic tendencies that humans have. I mean, we all know that dolphins are really smart and, yeah. you know, they have, like, a social system. And there's really no reason to slaughter a dolphin because these people don't eat dolphin meat. It's not, like, the dolphin is not culturally important to their belief system. There's really no reason for that other than this sort of tradition of brutality. Well, I think even if the dolphin, even if they did eat the meat and even if the dolphin was important to their cultural tradition, the point that this comic is making is that, like, the dolphin should have a say over what happens to it because it's smart enough to do that. Right. Um, but what I'm saying is in other cultures where hunting animals is important to the cultural significance of that, you know, they respect and they, you know, are mindful of the killing that they're doing. Yeah. This is kind of like just murder for murder's sake. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's portrayed as... It's very horrific. I read this comic... For the first time, like, when I was, like, in early in high school, maybe in late middle school. And, like, the dolphin stuff, like, has stuck with me since then. Like, I was, like, waiting, like, tensing, like, when are we going to get to the dolphin issue? Because it's so horrific, some of the shit they just show people doing with them. And then, like, it's weird because the next issue that follows it up is almost kind of comedic. Well, you got to realize that this issue was, you wouldn't have read this issue for a month You'd have a month to think about yeah. it before the next issue came out. Yeah, so it's not like a, it's not quite the same thing. We're reading it in a much more con- compressed format. But yeah, this next issue is, is basically this well, one has the best title. Yeah, what is the title? It's called "The Clockwork Crimes of the Time Commander." Yeah, so Time Commander is a rather obscure character. He's a DC Comics villain. He really he's um, a scientist that got like fired, so, and then he made a magic. Not a ma- I mean, he not magic. Uh, functionally magic, but he made a super science hourglass that let him control time. Um, and you know, he had a couple clashes with the Green Lantern and Batman, and he like tried to use his time thing to like. It's like a, an hourglass. Yeah. I think the cover of this is interesting because this is the first time that you see this sort of Justice League of Europe like mm. together. Yeah, we get Elongated Man, Red uh, Rocket Red, and Metamorpho standing with Animal Man, looking over the body of the Time Commander, who's laying in a uh, in a graveyard. They look much cooler in the cover. Like when you start to read the issue, they kind of look kind of cartoony and well, kind I, of like. Bollard makes everybody look cooler. <laughs> but yeah, so he's he. Uh, so uh, what happens in this issue is. Uh, Ellen's book has been bought for publication. She she is going to be able to put out her children's book that she's wanted to put out since the beginning of the comic. And to celebrate, they're going to use the Justice League teleporter to go to Paris. And then, but the first page is this kind of weird, like, hyper man who's running around the streets of Paris, like, looking at people's watches. And then you kind of get, like, this idea that there's, like, this man who's having some kind of, like, I don't know if it's like an awareness or whatever. Well, it's the time commander. He's escaped and he has successfully stopped time in Paris. As far as he's concerned, he stopped everyone's clocks. 
which is like uh, a weird. The Justice League, their at their monitoring site, uh, realized that it's time has gone wonky there, uh, and uh, Buddy shows up, and <laughs> Metamorpho is taking a nap as a chair, which <laughs> Alan sits on, and then he's like insulted. Even but also, though- like, okay, so his wife is Elongated- Sue, yeah, right, and she is like the administrator. So the Elongated Man and Sue Dibney are literally what they are is the Thin Man, but when one of them has superpowers, yeah. So then she's like the administrative core of the Justice League Europe, yeah, and he is like she's kind of annoyed with him because he is. Being goofball and taking a nap as a chair, blah, blah, blah. Oh, that's a different guy. They have have two different dudes with stretchy powers on the same team, which seems unnecessary, but whatever. Uh, But yeah, so they're hanging around because they're going to investigate this time thing. Uh, And then Buddy shows up for his vacation. And the time... I I like how he, like, his vacation outfit is, like, dad jeans and a camera. Yeah. Uh, he's got sunglasses. And so, but the Time Commander is running amok in the city. So, like, they're walking along by the river and they're having this conversa- conversation. And we get a little insight in their relationship. And she's talking about how, like, it's okay to her that, like, things are weird. Like, if she, if she wouldn't have married him if she wasn't cool with that. But then we see the pressure that gets put on it when things go wrong later in the next issue. And then they run into a T Rex. Yes. Which Buddy punches. <laughs> But let's talk about the Justice League. Europe. Oh, they're dorks. <laughs> My note says, Justice League equals bunch of weirdos, question mark? Yeah. So they're like, definitely like the Justice League B team. Yeah, basically. Because <laughs> uh, it's like this like Russian guy in an Iron Man suit, and then Metamorpho and Elongator Man are both weird stretchy guys. Uh, they like roll up and... like. <laughs> Unlonged Man is riding in a chariot made out of Metamorpho. <laughs> but I had some, like, I was wondering about this. Like, Sue Dibney, she doesn't have any powers. Right? No, she's just a detective. Okay. And then Elongated Man, he can stretch his body because he drank a soda? Yes, Gingle. Uh, he's okay. Gingle. Gingle? Yes. Yeah. Um, That's weird, right? <laughs> it is weird. It's never really made sense, but whatever. He's like friends with the Flash. If you watch the Flash show, he's becomes a major character in the Flash uh, in the fifth season, I think. And then Ele- Metamorpho is Element Man. Yeah, we saw his uh, distaff counterpart in Sandman, who's having a much harder time than he is. Well, that's exactly what I said. I have the note right here. Element Man transforms into anything, question mark, Sandman. I thought he was in Sandman. Yeah, uh, yeah. So he then, he functionally has similarly stretchy powers, but his thing is more about like he can metamorphosize his body into different elements and configurations. Okay, and then Rocket Red is a wacky four. Soviet, and he his thing is he just has powers that come from the suit of armor. Yeah, he basically just has Iron Man armor. Okay. It's designed by your comrade and mine, Kilowog from the Green Lantern comics, who is. Uh, comes from a communist planet, and when the Green Lanterns are briefly relocated to Earth, he uh, joins the Soviet Union, and he designs these for them because he feels bad that they don't have superheroes. And then he's also like Buddy. He's like a family man, and he has a bunch of kids that always bother him. Yeah. Okay, okay. 
Yeah, but he's also, he's like a blue jeans, sort of like <laughs> Yakov Smirnov character. Um, I, I love Rocket Red, just to be clear. I like that character a lot. Uh, but yes, yeah, I like that. And then Time Commander remembers who he is and miraculously finds his very complicated, very dated looking Time Commander outfit. That's like, of course, that like 1960s purple bodysuit yeah. that they all wear. He finds it, yeah, he finds it in like a locker. Uh, and so he's like running around causing these problems and they're trying to investigate what's going on. And they never really quite figure things out. The Time Commander is in a graveyard. He sees a vision of himself ten minutes in the future with his nose broken. And he's talking to this French woman, and he, like, rewinds time and makes her younger and revives her husband. And he's, like, bringing all of these people back from the dead. And, like, he's, like, helping people, quote-unquote, with, um, by rewinding time. And then the Justice League shows up and immediately start fighting him. And the thing that Buddy is struggling with while everyone else is just punching him and getting trapped in giant hourglasses is, like, he's trying to parse out whether or not this is okay. And, like, what responsibility do we have over time? These people seem happier, but, like, it's a violation of the natural order. And he's trying to have this philosophical, like, struggle with what the time commander is doing. And then before he gets to actually figure anything out, and he starts having his, like, oh, we're going to have our big Doctor Who conversation about the ethics of time manipulation and he they just start to get into it when metamorpho turns his hand into a big hammer and <laughs> smashes the hourglass and punches the time commander in the face but i think also in the middle of the fight like the red rocket he goes over to like ellen and he like starts talking to her and he says like i just love your english beat music jerry and the pacemakers the Applejacks." fab gear you know and then like <laughs> the other one's like oh hi nice to meet you mrs baker like they're right in the middle of like mm-hmm. fighting but then they have to like start like talking to like ellen but yeah and then he knocks but metamorpho knocks out the time commander and all this stuff that he did with time goes away and there's this like melancholy atmosphere and metamorpho's like what i beat the bad guy like that's what you're supposed to do like how could i possibly have done anything wrong i punched the guy who's called the time commander and then Buddy kind of walks away like, oh, I guess, like, it's all kind of silly, like, this superhero stuff. And then uh, he has dinner with Ellen, and... They uh, have, like, a romantic dinner. Yeah. But they're being watched by that government agent. And then we had a really disturbing cover. <laughs> yeah, this is definitely, like, weird. It's Buddy in front of a black background scowling, holding up a baby orangutan, I guess, that has had its eyes sewn shut. And I think this is, this is, I guess, what Roger was talking about in the previous issue about the animal laboratory situation that Animal Man embroils himself in. Yeah. So, it, I guess it's called Consequences from 1989. So, there's like two strains of narrative here. One, which we can just deal with pretty quickly, is this secret agent dude who's been following, like, lurking around for the past couple of issues. His name is Mr. Lennox. Right. He shows up and he's set in a graveyard in Glasgow uh, to confront the Mirror Master. And he's like, you are, you fucked up. You're fired. You're fired. I'm taking over. Tell, give me the layout of the Baker house. And 
Where is Glasgow? Is that Scotland? Scotland. Yeah, so he's well, That makes sense, right? Yeah. Oh, that, see, that, that makes more sense now that I know Morrison is from there because there's a lot of trash talk about Scotland. It's, and I a think lot it's, of trash talk about Glasgow being like an intellectual city it, or. It's very funny to me because it really feels like, oh, is Glasgow like the Philadelphia of the United <laughs> Kingdom? Because that's sort of the vibe I'm getting from this argument that they have and the way that Mirror Man, who's like a scumbag, talks about how great his city is. And then he gets kind of mad because Lennox is trashing it. And that's like yeah, part of the, like... He calls him like a dirtbag from the armpit of the uh, the armpit of Europe. And he's like, this is the cultural city of the world. Uh, and he starts fucking with them with the mirrors. And eventually he, like, Lennox, he's like, I'm serious. I'm not, like, a 80s tough guy, secret agent with a gun and has I'm a trench coat. The, yeah, I'm the men in black. And then this goofball supervillain clowns him into oblivion <laughs> and is like, look, I'm not going to, you got to pay me if you want me to give you that that layout and that's like their whole thing he says if you want the layout of the that guy's house you can whistle for it tell that to your bosses as well i mean right now like if this was written today you would just go on the internet and get like um you know like a yeah a floor plan a floor plan yeah but uh but yeah so that's the one story and the other story of going is animal man teams up with these more animal rights activist people and they break into this animal testing facility where they're doing like isolation and darkness experiments with these monkeys and they've sewn their eyes shut and it's absolutely horrific and as they rescue the monkeys but as they're leaving one guy stays behind and he decides to burn down the laboratory this ends up not killing anyone but horribly injuring because it's a chemical fire it ends up horribly injuring one of the firefighters that comes to fight the fire, who doesn't have anything to do with the animal testing thing, but he is, like, hor- horribly fucked up by this thing. And so Buddy struggles with the guilt, what his responsibility is, like, how much control he... Like, everything he does affects other people, and it's like, he can pursue, like... We've been getting this philosophy from him throughout the, most of this volume, where he's like, I just do the thing that's right. Like, and I want to just follow, like, my internal moral code. And it's, like, how much of a responsibility does he have to other people because his actions affect everybody else. And it all kind of culminates in this televised debate where he gets goaded into causing a scene as he's called out for being an inadequate role model. And they, everybody seems to think that he isn't, wasn't, they don't, there's no proof that he was involved in that fire but everyone seems to basically know that he was, and no, no. he looks like an asshole on TV. Also, Ellen and Roger both call him out for yeah what happened. And then Roger quits being his manager because he can't handle this anymore. And that they, they have a conversation about that that ends with Buddy being like, I think I'm just going to quit being Animal Man. Like, it's too much for me now. And he feels like he's made a mistake uh, and he's going to take, he's going to quit the Justice League and he's going to give his last paycheck to the fireman that was injured. Uh, and he's like, oh, maybe he can buy some straws to drink out of. Like, it's really bleak. Yeah. Uh, there's also a part where he um, finds Cliff sneaking a burger. Yeah, this is kind of like a dad moment. But it's an, it's the, probably the best dad moment he's had, 
where he is like, look, I can't make these decisions for you, and I don't, I won't and can't force you to be a vegetarian, but, like, I want you to know, like, what's going on and how you're acting. And this is him realizing, like, that he's fucked up. Because he's like, I want you to realize, like, how your actions affect the world around you. And it's, like, this really, I think it's a really good moment because he doesn't realize in that moment that he's actually laying out the ethos he should be abiding by. Which is, like, not to take people's, like, control away from them, but to, like, expose these things that are happening and to illustrate to people, like, the effect they're having on the world. While also, like, calling himself out for taking actions without fully thinking through the consequences. And then while also illustrating this ethos to Cliff as a dad. Yeah. Uh, which is, I think, why he ends up deciding to quit at the end of the issue. But the, also, the other thing that's happening here is... Highwater finally makes it to Animal Man's house uh, and somehow gets inside and they open the door at the end and half of his body is being erased. Well, there's like a precursor where he's driving in the hot, down the uh, highway to get to San Francisco and he looks at his hand and his hand is like, becomes an outline. Yeah, and that's what's happening to the rest of his body. Um, yeah, and I think this is sort of like... This is when it's really clear that what's going on with High Water and the psychic pirate is what's happening is linked to the storyline of the creator. Yeah. But Buddy tries to quit being Animal Man and immediately this other bigger thing intrudes upon his life. Yes. I also like that like Ellen is like doing the laundry and she says like she's hanging out one of his Animal Man suits. And she's like, he's like, where did you find that? I haven't seen that since I was 21. Yeah. And it's like the old suit. It's a black suit. It's like from his goth phase. I think that's supposed to be the suit that the ghost one is wearing. Yeah. Also, that costume ends up being the basis for the, like, 2011 redesign of him for the New 52. Uh, so then we get one more flashback with where we see... Once more, like, a recurrence of, like, Buddy's origin story. Yeah, showing it's kind of been, like, finalized now. Because, like, Roger remembers it, too. Yeah. This is his remembrance of it. We see young Roger with his Ramon shirt with the sleeves cut off and his long hair, contrasting with, like, slick, you know, button-down shirt Roger that we know in the modern timeline. Yeah, and then you get, that's when you have the, Roger has the heart-to-heart where he says, look, I'm done, you know. And then I think this is kind of like, we knew this was going to happen because it happened in the first volume where he talks about like some of the things like the fox hunt. Mm. And I don't know if he mentions the dolphin hunt. No, I, I think it's he specific... just mentions the lab and the, do- and the fox. Yeah. And then he, like, Buddy shows up. He's not in his animal man suit, but he is flying. Yeah. And he gets there and he's like trying to talk to Alan and Alan's like, another one of your weirdo friends has shown up. He opens the door, and he was like, help me, Animal Man, help me. And of yeah. course, Buddy's like, oh, of course, again. Yeah, and that that's the end of the volume, and uh, everything's going to get wrapped up in the next one. Wait, is there only three volumes? There's only three. That's why we're, we were going to do this and then go right into Doom Patrol. Okay. Because this one's only three volumes. I mean, so, longer. have you read the, you read the third I've read all of it. Okay. Yeah. So... You don't have to tell me what's going on, but are we definitely getting some wrap up, some kind of closure yes, with the yes, psychic yes. pirate? And yeah, yeah. John Highwater. 
Okay, good. Did you you said you had a bunch of questions? Are there more no, questions no, I, that haven't I, been answered yet? I put the questions in the store, and some of them were answered just in your description of it. Oh, okay, cool. But I definitely think that like it's clear that Marson is going to lean more into sort of the metafiction that's coming up because that has something to do with John Highwater because the yeah. last full panel, like you said, is him partly drawn and the background sort of like fading away to like a line drawing. Yeah. So. Is the creator in other series or is this just in the animal run that Morrison is doing? What do you mean? The character of the creator. <laughs> we will talk about it when we do the okay, third volume. Okay. There's like what We'll talk about it. There's It's weird, um, but it's funny. Yeah, I thought it was... I mean, there was a lot of stuff that I didn't know because I didn't know... I don't have the encyclopedic knowledge of Morrison's love of comics in my brain. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I kind of... It was clear, like I said in the beginning, that Morrison likes to take older characters, more obscure characters. Kind of like characters that only, like, a super fan would know and would get excited about seeing in a new storyline. Mm -hmm. Which I think is interesting. Yeah. I mean, that was, like, a big part of, like, what really got me into Morrison when I was younger was just because, like, I'm a huge comic nerd and I love all of these obscure characters and I like when creators use them in cool ways. And that was kind of, like, my entry in and then I sort of fell in love with the rest of their writing. Uh, but, yeah. Do you have anything else to say about the origin of Does the Does he species? leave the Justice League? He's, yes. Yes, he definitely does. Okay. Does Cliff stay a vegetarian? I don't know. Maybe. That heart-to-heart -heart about that juicy burger, really. <laughs> and then I guess, just another quick question. Does the 927 pay off? Yes. Okay. All right, good. That's good. Okay, so what do we have coming up next? Uh, So the next thing we're going to do is we're... I mean, I think I might have mispronounced this dude's name the last time I said it. So let me actually look at... Up. Yeah, we are going to cover the Palm Wine Drinker by Amos Tutuola. Okay. Uh, it's like a kind of a mythical fairy tale story. It's I think I mentioned this the last time we talked about what we were doing next. It's the first novel. I think this is right. It's the first novel to be written in Africa and then published in America. Oh, interesting. Uh, I've never read it, so I'm looking forward to reading it. Yeah, I think it'll be cool. Um, yeah, and then obviously we'll do Animal Man Volume 3, and then you can tune in to that episode to find out what we're doing after that. I already said we were doing Doom Patrol, so you know. <laughs> um, I'm an expert on Doom Patrol, because I watched two seasons of the TV show. That's cool. We'll be able to compare and contrast them. So. That'll be nice. So, spoilers, stay soon. Stay tuned.